Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. On this episode, we're joined by a friend and colleague, Vladimir Milov. He is a, an independent or opposition figure in Russia, an independent economist, as well as an advisor to the imprisoned Russian dissident Alexei Navalny. Milov has written extensively on Russian economics, and for a forthcoming paper to be published shortly by the Free Russia Foundation, He's contributed uh, two chapters of great significance and importance, I think. Uh, the first on Russian strategic investments in the American tech sector, and also on a perennial subject, uh, Russia's instrumentalization of the energy sector or, or energy security to advance its state interests. Uh, Vladimir, it's great to have you on the show for the first time, and I hope not the last. You know, you are close to Alexei Navalny, and I, we've had several guests on in the past few months to describe his plight, first the poisoning, and then, of course, the return from Berlin to Moscow, upon which he was immediately arrested and incarcerated for violating the conditions of his parole, which conditions he couldn't help but violate, given that he was poisoned by the FSB and had to be airlifted to another country for medical treatment. Have you been in touch with him and how is he doing? Well, not directly. Uh, hello, Michael, and many thanks for having me. It's uh, great to talk to you. I'm not talking to Navalny directly. Obviously, no one does except his attorneys or relatives. This is the only thing that is permitted right now. But, but we, we, of course, have some understanding of his messages that he has uh, to deliver to all of us and to the general public, well, he's uh, never losing spirit, uh, but the conditions are pretty tough. He's been sent to one of the strictest uh, colonies, which is totally contradictory with his sentence and the article of the criminal code that he's been tried for, because uh, normally like 99% of people who's been convicted under that article it's economic fraud or stuff like that which he was never involved in that's all fabricated but still they would have to spend their term in so-called settlement colony where you can like freely roam around uh, between buildings relatives are more or less free to visit you all the time and so but he was an exception he was sent to one of the strictest colonies with a very strict regime so there is only a limited communication but he's never losing spirit and uh, he continues to deliver this uh, political messages that we need to keep on the fight no matter how hard the situation may seem on the ground uh, so that is very encouraging even for people who are really upset by uh, his imprisonment but uh, he's performing well i mean he's delivering all the messages and all the words that people are longing to here. So even uh, behind bars, he's very effective as a leader. And how is his health? I mean, I, I remember uh, talking to you and I'm quoting you, in fact, for an article I wrote it for Time magazine when he was on hunger strike and he had been denied access to his own physicians. So we really couldn't get a sense of, of just how bad a state he was in. I mean, clearly, when you've been poisoned by Novichok, there are lingering long-term, if not permanent, after effects. Uh, I mean, I, I've interviewed the Bulgarian arms dealer Emilian Gebrev, who still suffers from physiological and mental maladies as a result of his poisoning. And yet also the, the fact that, I mean, I don't think it's going too far to say the Russian government is committed to harming this man, if not trying to kill him. So it, there was a spell there where it looked like Navalny might perish in the penal colony, uh, and then he was given access to his doctors and he ended his hunger strike. I mean, what, what is the state of his medical health at the moment? I have to go back a few months uh, to April, where actually he ended his hunger strike because it worked. 
and all the international pressure have worked. So it's important to understand that all the uh, international pressure on Putin and the media attention across the globe really did have an impact. So his hunger strike happened because he demanded access to civil medics because his colony did not provide uh, adequate capabilities for his inspection or treatment. He was uh, transferred to another colony where he had a hospital, and uh, he was uh, moved to a civil uh, clinic in the city of Vladimir nearby, where his inspection, actually, the, the medical tests were provided to his team. They did a full inspection as he required. So things have improved significantly after, after that happened, and uh, he ended his hunger strike. However, we are still very much concerned about the residual effects of his poisoning, which is a great unknown, you know, because there hasn't been uh, many people who had recovered from Novichok. He's really one of the very, very few examples alongside Sergei Skripal and his daughter, who are really now living in secrecy and uh, probably for the better. But uh, Navalny really has obvious problems with access to normal medical inspection and treatments because he's in colony, which is a matter of great concern. So as far as his daily health is concerned, things got better because the, demand have, the demands have worked. International pressure, domestic pressure has worked. Mm. Uh, however, we're still concerned about all these effects of poisoning and how the recovery is going, because that's one big unknown. So we still demand, we continue to demand that uh, he is actually transported to Moscow and being allowed to independent civic medical inspection, which is not happening. But I think it's not going to happen, uh, not least before the September Duma election, which is a turning point for Putin, obviously. And uh, Putin wants uh, to make this final weeks of the election campaign to be a, a show of strength, obviously, that yeah. he's not caving in some demands by the opposition and so on. So we really have very little illusion about what's going to happen in, in, in a month or so. However, you know, our best hopes are associated with the prospect of United Russia being at least partially defeated in September. Yeah. If that happens, we expect uh, more chances and better environment uh, for Navalny to be at least released for civil civil medical inspection, inspection and treatment. You alluded to the fact that international pressure, uh, in effect, saved Navalny's life back in April. Um, in, in the West, it's sometimes difficult to kind of, it's almost like a kind of political alchemy trying to, to figure out you know, what pressure points can be pushed uh, by the U.S. government or by the European Union or just sort of civil society NGOs in the West to effectuate an outcome that is favorable to dissidents, uh, journalists, uh, human rights campaigners or political figures such as Navalny. I mean, how do we know that it was essentially a, a chorus of complaints that affected Putin's calculation to at least allow this man, you know, access to proper medical care? Well, Michael, you're right that we're talking more about the art than the science. Uh, we do right. know for sure. There are no clear formulas uh, when we come down to determining what's on Putin's mind. However, I have to say that we've had many, many situations with Putin before, and uh, we can compare different types of trouble that opposition was into, different type of demands and how Putin reacted. I think we can be more or less certain uh, that Putin would not be providing independence or at least some sort of civic inspection, medical inspection to Navalny. He will not be discharging him to uh, another colony which has a hospital available because 
Navalny is kept in a colony which is only a paramedic. Uh, that was all the problem was about. So he was imprisoned in, in February. He was imprisoned in a colony which only has a paramedic and who doesn't have a qualification to inspect him. So after all the pressure, domestic, international, in late April, he was actually uh, transported to another colony where they in fact have a hospital. And also he was inspected at the civil civic hospital in Vladimir. Uh, before that, uh, Russian authorities have been explicitly denying that anything is wrong and saying that Navalny is provided with all the treatment that is necessary, so there is no need for any sort of additional action. Yeah. Then came additional action. And uh, if you also compare the level of international involvement in this particular case, after Navalny's poisoning, with the previous cases of uh, harassment or, or aggressive actions against the Russian opposition, this time it was really something. I mean, the scale was different, and Putin also received many calls from international leaders. We were also in touch with some of them, and obviously Navalny was raised at, at any conversation that was happening in late March uh, and, and during April and so on, and we're, we're aware of some of the details that uh, have been taking place. So combining all these facts, comparing with what happened before, the fact that Putin had made this abrupt turnaround and suddenly after denying that anything is wrong had allowed medical inspection and treatment of Navalny, we think uh, with a, you know, a, a reasonable degree of confidence that an input from an international community did play an important role. Another thing which played an important role were the nationwide protests of April 21st. So I think it was some sort of combination of domestic and international pressure, which had made an abrupt change in Putin's attitude because just days before Navalny was discharged to a hospital, there was an official denial that there is even a need to do so. There has been a quick change that happened, and we think it's most likely the combination of both, in which also I think the domestic pressure itself probably would not have been sufficient, given the fact that it happened to a similar extent before and Putin didn't give in. So most likely it was a combination of both, uh, pressure from inside and outside. I have to ask you, uh, since you're on this program, uh, your thoughts about U.S. policy with respect to Russia. I mean, we're now several months, I mean, into the Biden administration. Then candidate Biden campaign, certainly in a more anti-Kremlin posture than I think the, the dividends of his policymaking have shown, the sort of capitulation on Nord Stream 2, the waiving of sanctions, naming Matthias Warnick, a former Stasi officer, allegedly, reportedly personally recruited by Putin to be also a KGB agent when Putin was stationed, stationed as uh, in Dresden. A lot of people uh, in our circle and in, in this sort of uh, Russia watching space have been disappointed so far uh, and feel that especially the Democratic Party, which for the last several years has been screaming, screaming from the rooftops about Russian interference and influence campaigns and dark money corrupting the Western political sphere, now all of a sudden seems to be in a deal making mode. It's not quite another reset. And it's certainly not rapprochement, but we're back to a kind of status quo ante of transactional politicking with the Kremlin instead of, I don't know, a, a policy of containment and isolation and deterrence. What do you make of the, first of all, the, the Biden-Putin summit, which was 
heavily scrutinized in the press. Do you think that there is some kind of sort of gentleman's agreement insofar as that matters to someone like Putin about what can be permitted and what the United States is willing to give in order to stop Russian aggression, whether it's cyber warfare and cyber operations accredited to the security services or those that are now plausibly, deniably credited to criminal organizations which run rampant in, in, in Russia. What is your sense uh, as a Kremlinologist and also, I guess, a, a Bidenologist, if, if that's a term of, of art I can now coin? What's going on between the two countries? Let me provide a bit of a lengthy answer to this important question. I've been watching America's Russia policy for quite a long time. I used to work with the Clinton administration in late 90s and um, I was a co-chair of an interministerial uh, Russia-U.S. energy dialogue back in 2002 with the uh, Undersecretary of Energy, Vicky Bailey. I worked with administrations of Bush, Obama, and well, not exactly Trump, but uh, the current administration as well. I have some uh, view on this, and I think uh, American policy have always been torn apart between two things. First, the fundamental realization that something is wrong with Russia. And that should be addressed because it might evolve into a bigger scale risk, a bigger scale problem, and this risk should be seriously mitigated. Neither in the Biden administration nor in the Washington political and expert circles, there is there is no deficit of people who really understand yeah. all the underlying trends and all the threats and risks that are associated with the course that Russia has taken. I mean, the expertise is there. There are many brilliant people who really understand what's going on. However, there's this other big uh, whole set of considerations that, you know, it's a sort of a loose, uh, loose association of different ways of thinking. Like, first, Russia is too big and you cannot change it. Right. You have to take it the way it is. Like uh, some experts say, it will never be liberal democracy. Russians are just the way they are. So we have to accept it. Second thing is accept it or not, but they are a nuclear superpower. They're an important player in strategic issues from non-proliferation to Middle East uh, to climate. There's also this Chinese element because a lot of people in the US and in Europe see rising uh, authoritarian China as a bigger problem. So they, they you know, uh, they're looking at Russia through this secondary lens, you know, they, yeah. they just do not uh, try to deal with Russia as a separate problem, but they look at this through this prism of China thinking, you know, China's centric view. So no matter how bad Russia is, but China is the biggest potential adversary. So we have to put Russia into that equation, right? Uh, either, either we work with it or it will become more uh, leaning towards China's orbit and so on. That's the sort of Emmanuel Macron way of thinking. So America was always torn apart you know, between specifically addressing what's happening in Russia and specific risks associated with Russia. And this sort of bigger considerations. I think it became uh, more difficult recently because of uh, all these domestic U.S. Uh, political problems, because you see that Russia's, Russia policy becomes hostage of this blame game between Republicans and Democrats, and they all want to score points by saying that, look, but we... But we introduced more sanctions on Russia. We put a hundred more officials and military men on sanctions list. So we've been tougher, you know, than each other. Yeah. It sort of becomes a hostage of this domestic American political volleyball, if you will, which is not helpful. This partisanship is really not 
helpful uh, in working out a coherent Russia policy because I understand why Biden is somewhat softening on Putin because Putin is not doing anything particular at the moment. He's sort of hiding in an ambush. Right. People are saying that Biden is not really tough. I can understand why. Because if Biden makes the first tough move, then Putin will respond. He will create a lot of trouble for Biden and Biden will be blamed for this politically. Right. There will come Trump and Republicans who will say, see, but we were tough on Putin, but he didn't do stuff like that to us. So it's Biden's fault. So I understand that he's also, he's calibrating his approach because also of that factor. So you see that generally Russian policy is torn apart between a very good expertise and a very good understanding that we, we really need to be tough on this uh, outcast uh, rogue regime, which is very dangerous. And a lot of these bigger considerations, geostrategic considerations, global considerations, security, climate considerations, China considerations and domestic policy factors, which prevent some real serious action on Putin from being taken. So I think Biden administration had fell hostage to this. I thought they would be better prepared. I mean, they have a lot of good people in there, but I, I really believed when Biden came in that they will fully understand this challenge. So they will make this ultimate choice, like we say in Russia, Choose which side you're on, right? I think Biden's policy at the moment looks like he is not able to pick the side. He's on the side of big geopolitical considerations, which move this real Putin policy sort of sideways. Or he's really understanding what Putin is and what trouble he can deliver further down the road. And he's taking steps to prevent all these risks from materializing. He seems stuck. He seems unable to actually decide between the two, the, the big geopolitical approach versus the specific Russia approach. This is a man who, in many ways, is a 20th century internationalist, which used to be a kind of bipartisan position, right? I mean, in certain respects, Joe Biden is the John McCain of the Democratic Party, at least when it comes to Europe, the, the sort of 89er generation of a Europe Poland free, you know, the march of liberal democracy and market economies and so on. And yet the Europe he has inherited as U.S. president is a vastly different place from what it was 30 years ago, right? You have democratic backsliding in countries such as Poland, Hungary, which has now become a kind of the paradigm for the alt-right conservative movement in the United States, a form of illiberal democracy, but one that believes in, you know, the kind of the, the family values, church God, you know, patriotism and so on, as embodied by Viktor Orban. And, you know, I mean, I saw the Nord Stream deal as something, essentially his way of trying to appease Angela Merkel and also the German political class, because for Biden, you know, you, you can't have a policy, a Europe policy without Germany on board. So we didn't want to piss off the Germans. So we, we gave them their 98% completed pipeline. But in exchange for what is the question? What is the American gain here? If it's just Russia promises to behave a bit more kittenish, at least for the short term, that seems almost walking into a Putinist trap, right? They do something naughty and they continue to do it and they escalate. We sanction them and get a little heated in our rhetoric, but then we kind of cut a deal where we give them something in exchange for their promise not to carry on as before. That seems to be paying or rewarding aggressive behavior rather than actually engaging in a, a really pragmatic form of real politic. I mean, you, you said to me, and I remember this quote because it, it, was, it was quite powerful, that in the 21st century, real politic cannot be separated from the human rights agenda 
writ large, right? I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit, what you mean by that. I mean, if the United States wants to lead or America is back, as the, the Biden slogan goes, how must it engage with these humanitarian imperatives in places where, I mean, I have to be honest, it seems like American power and influence is at an all-time low. There's very few things we could do. I don't know how we could have stopped Putin from arresting and imprisoning Navalny when Navalny chose to go back to, to Moscow, right? What is the realpolitik agenda for the 21st century a la Milov? Well, I think this whole concept of separating realpolitik from human rights is a very outdated one from the 21st century, which we also had a lot of people had a lot of illusions back then because we had this competition between the two systems. So uh, many people in the West tolerated like, okay, this guy is a bad guy. He's a dictator, but he's our son of a bitch because he's against the communists. Uh, so let's take him on up on board. And I mean, a lot of a lot of dictators who violated human rights really did a lot uh, to contain communism. So in terms of this strategic goal, that was in a lot of cases achieved. However, the uh, flip side of the coin was such an approach of supporting our sons of the bitches really did discredit Western liberal democracy in the eyes of many people uh, in developing world, Latin America in particular, but not, not only. However, I have to say that in, in the modern times, the setup is completely different. We, we don't have the competition between the communist system and the capitalist system anymore. We have a competition between very, very advanced very clever authoritarian states who have this big trade union, if you will, big authoritarian autocrat international, Russia, China, Middle East, despotic regimes, and Maduro and, and, and many others, who are really considering Western liberal democracy model as an existential threat. And the use of a lot of advanced tools also penetrating in Western soil, interfering in Western democracies. This is what the report is about, getting back to it and so on. Yeah, we can, we're going to touch on that in a second. I just wanted to let you finish this thought. One thing which is important to understand is that human rights is not just some you know, annoying fringe issue somewhere on the sideways, which is interfering with big geopolitics. Violations of human rights and the crackdown of democracy is an early sign that the country which is doing this is going to misbehave internationally. It's going to join this big autocrat international, which is going to tread on Western democracies and uh, force them into retreat, which is going to disrupt, uh, which is going to interfere, which is going to uh, you know, pursue their interests through instruments which uh, violate international rule-based order and international law and so on. When we were crying out to the Bush administration to pay attention to violation of human rights back in 2000s, we were saying, look, it's an illusion that Putin's going to stop there. Once he consolidates power domestically, he will export this behavior. And then came Georgia, then came Ukraine and all that stuff. So people who were saying, I mean, okay, Putin might misbehave domestically, but if we sort of drag him in, if we agree to some military basis in Central Asia or whatever, I mean, let him be. He's our ally. We have many despots, allies in the Middle East and elsewhere, so no big deal. That was a mistake. Because as you said correctly, Putin understood this tolerance as a sign that he's allowed to do stuff. Right. So first, he's allowed to crack down and imprison opposition at home. Next thing he might claim, 
my near abroad, the neighboring countries are my exclusive zone of influence. What he's going to claim next? Now he's saying Middle East is mine, Syria, Libya, and so on. Next, he's going to install his people in governments in the Western world. We already saw that. Freedom Party of Austria has an open agreement, cooperation agreement with uh, United Russia. So does Salvini's Lega in Italy. There is an illusion. It's a 20, 20th century illusion that we might ignore human rights, but this guy can be an ally in fighting global communism. Not anymore. Well, on this, this is a great segue into the, the forthcoming report, which I've edited, and we have a, a host of fantastic contributors. And so, Vladimir, you, you wrote on, and, and I think one of the more fascinating aspects of, of your contribution is, and, and this is something I didn't even realize, or not to the extent that you, uh, you elaborate on it, you call it sort of the Kremlin strategic investment in the growing techno technological sectors of the West, particularly U.S. companies, which have taken money from Russian oligarch, which is to say, I mean, oh, I define an oligarch as a kind of plenipotentiary of the regime, right? You are allowed to keep your billions and not be thrown into prison or have you know, your assets nationalized so long as you become a kind of public advocate for the Russian government position or engage in influence campaigns and influence peddling and so on. Um, I don't think the average American is aware of the extent of Russian money that has kind of cycled through some pretty high level corporations in the US. I mean, you talk about Uber, you talk about a lot of these sort of like app-based service industry companies. Talk a little bit about how this all got started and what's the kind of lay of the land as of now. I know a lot of, uh, particularly in light of, of the situation in Ukraine and the sort of freudure that descended on U.S.-Russian relations in the last several years, a lot of Russian money was then taken out of, of this sector, but there's still some bouncing around. Uh, what is the goal here and who's doing what exactly? Well, first, I have to say that when I wrote this report, I didn't really realize the extent of penetration into different important uh, sectors of U.S. economy and new technologies. I was taken aback by the extent of coverage and by specific focus on uh, penetrating into advanced uh, technological sectors, which... I mean, it's it's not. You mentioned Uber, but it's not only Uber, but it's also Lyft, Lyft two yeah. companies which completely dominate ride sharing, which is the one of the number one sectors that uh, are the future of the U.S. urban passenger transport. But there's so much more. There's data storage, online communication systems, which became all so important during the COVID crisis when we all have moved online uh, to a big extent. And many other stuff that I'm listing, and also importantly, the energy part of it, which describes that Russians are picking new sectors which only have recently emerged, like ethane production, which is essentially a byproduct of the oil and gas shale revolution. All of a sudden, Russian created a Russian-owned company because it becomes the biggest play, uh, player in producing and exporting U.S. ethane worldwide and so on. So th there are many examples of that. And... Um, the cross-sectoral penetration makes you really wonder, because this goes back also to our political conversation. I have observed from close range uh, how the authoritarian buildup in Russia have happened during the early years of Putin. It never happened like Putin came down and said, we abolish democracy, establish a dictatorship. I am the, the Tsar now. I'm the emperor and I will right. rule with iron fist. No, it all came with this, you know, 
thousands and thousands of tiny moves, uh, tiny changes to the system, penetration in media, judiciary, and civil society, and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, at a certain point, you have like a flip of the switch, and bang, you are trapped. That's really very important because uh, knowing and having working with all these people, oligarchs, uh, state companies, I completely exclude that they invest in the United States uh, without any political considerations in mind. Because they all have what we call period deal, this is the first department, which is the essentially a bunch of the KGB folks. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. This that's that's serious and. Normally, you have a deputy director on security, which is a KGB guy with his whole department that is uh, pursuing a strategic agenda uh, in there. And uh, obviously, they do have uh, extensive communication with government about their international investment and so on. And I know this from my government background. So given the extent of penetration in the U.S. advanced sectors, I completely exclude that this was not coordinated for the purposes of at least uh, detailed studying which technologies are most important and which will shape the future of American economy and society and so on. We have some quotes in my report from Patanian, uh, for instance. Patanian is one of the biggest venture investors in the U.S. through his Eldpoint uh, Capital Foundation. A lot of Abros uh, were raised when uh, people recently found out that uh, one of Patanian's companies have acquired a data storage company in Maryland, which was effectively in charge of processing the electronic voting and uh, voting machines uh, during the Maryland election. It was not compromised, but still, Patanian had admitted in his interview to Commerce Sun newspaper, which I quote that. He's maintaining investments in the most advanced digital sectors of the U.S. economy just to keep a hand on the pulse, meaning that he wants to be aware of the most modern trends and so on. And that is so far apart. This is actually worlds apart from the core business of Patanian. He produces nickel somewhere out there in uh, northern eastern Siberia, Narilsk and sells it to the international market. What does he have to do? There is no connection between his core business and all this advanced digital stuff, uh, data storage, online communications that he's investing in the U.S. So why he's doing that? It's not connected with, with his core business activities. So, and also, if you look at how many Russian companies are involved in penetrating into advanced uh, technologies in the U.S., this really looks as a coordinated effort, and at least it's worth paying attention to in that terms. It suffice it to say that if an American company or an American businessman wanted to do likewise in Russia, you know, invest in data storage facilities or in, you know, poke around the energy sector, that person would either be barred from doing so, or if they're allowed to do so, they should be even more worried because they're, they're probably going to be compromised or co-opted. Uh, in some way. I mean, the argument you hear a lot from those who think that the concern about Kremlin influence peddling and interference is uh, overcooked is that, well, why, why should we dis, dis foreclose on the possibility of honest Russian businessmen and honest Russian companies doing 
commerce in the West, right? Isn't that what we asked them to do in the 90s when communism collapsed? We, we consulted and brought market, you know, economic advisors to Moscow and all of this. This is, you know, the term Russophobia gets thrown around. So what, what is to say that a, a Russian billionaire cannot make investments in, in a Maryland data company or cannot sit on the board or in this case, just, you know, use a, a subsidiary to invest in Uber and Lyft and some of these rising technologies. Maybe they just want to make money. How do we know that there is a political or ideological agenda driving all of this? Well, Michael, that's a legitimate point, uh, which is why I'm not calling for this hysterical, you know, view of any Russian investment as something wrong. Yeah. What I try to outline instead in my report is that, it, first, it's such a systemic effort, a cross-sector effort to invest like everywhere important. So it's really worth paying attention to. Further studying whether there is a connection with some sort of organized effort uh, where the Russian authorities stand behind or not. That's also a legitimate point. Well, while people may say that your uh, suspicions are overblown, okay, I buy it. But then I also encourage everybody to buy the argument that because everything is in Russia is so overly centralized, and government really has influence on any major investor, any major businessman, any oligarch, that there is a reason to study. Yeah. That's my point. I do not want to raise hysteria just as such, right? right. I want uh, to pay attention, first, how very widespread and cross-sectoral these investments are, and second, that all these big oligarchs, all these companies are somehow connected to the state. And that's an important point, because you can still try to dress up as a private Russian businessman billionaire, but you cannot escape the fact that any private businessman who were really not on the same boat with Kremlin and did not behave and did not... Uh, obey Kremlin's rules, they were persecuted, exiled, and their business is taken. Mm. So if you are allowed to continue, and moreover, if there are signs of very generous government support to what you're doing, which is like case of Patanian, we saw that on the last year's catastrophe uh, in Narisk, where they, they, there was a disastrous spill of diesel fuel into the water, the biggest contamination in the history of the Arctic, but the government was essentially covering up Patanium in a lot of ways, not trying to nationalize him using this as a pretext, but essentially covering it up, expelling investigators from Narisk, uh, trying to you know, constrain their activity and uh, issuing some modest fines, which are not really corresponding to the extent of the damage, and Putin not even mentioning the name of Patanium and Narisk Nikel while discussing this accident at an open meeting that is broadcasted on the Kremlin's website, he never mentioned Patanin and Narisk Nikola as guilty parties, right? Yeah. So when, when you have this extent of connection, when you have this extent of cross-sector uh, coordinated effort of investing everywhere possible, my point is pay attention, investigate it. Don't wait until it is too late because there's like a huge certainty that... Uh, there are strings attached. Sure. Even if I'm exaggerating the threat, okay, if after you investigate, if you find out that there's no threat and Milov is just stupid, I mean, so be it. I will be happy that you investigated and found out that there's no fire where there was smoke. But let, let's let's actually drill down into the threats because government controlled or government dispatched businesses investing in, in Western corporations, there's sort of a panoply of things that could be going on there. Number one, the theft or, or attempted theft of intellectual property, right? I mean, one of the things I've been banging on about for months is the SVR solar winds hack, 
which was not like a GRU cyber attack. It was classic espionage. Will have ex- exfiltrated innumerable billions in high-tech intellectual property, right? With which God knows what can be done, right? Russian equivalents of the latest Microsoft software and, and so on and so forth. But a more concerning threat, which you outline in the report, are the national security implications of some of these things. So for instance, you talk about Rosatom uh, shutting down the Willow Creek uranium mine, thereby depriving the American energy sector of um, a crucial natural resource. Now, whether this is done to try and vitiate the American sort of energy sector just on its own, or is done in order to bolster the Russian competition, you know, Russia can now export uranium to the US market. I mean, outline some of the kind of worst case scenarios here, because, you know, the imagination kind of reels when you think of some dark shadowy figure in Moscow with access to Lyft and Uber's technological capabilities, right? I mean, in terms of surveillance, in terms of tracking people's movements through ride-sharing applications. Is that a little too 1970s political thriller-ish, or, or is that kind of what you're getting into here with this? Particularly in light of your comment that, you know, the services are enmeshed and embedded everywhere in Russian commercial enterprise. You know, given the uh, extent of recorded uh, malign activity of Putin in the recent years, it's really worth it to to be on alert, never hurting to actually pay attention and uh, be concerned about some bad stuff that might happen. Second, I think, and I I also write about this, that it looks like Russian cross-sector investment effort in the United States was planned to be much more grandiose, but it was scaled down significantly after 2014 and after sanctions introduced uh, in the wake of uh, Russian aggression against Ukraine. So they were forced to scale down investment because of the whole, I mean, not even because of some specific sanctions environment, but also because of the bigger attention paid to Russian investment and Russian investment becoming more toxic. So they, it looks like they scrapped a lot of specific plans, like Rosneft in particular. They still maintain, Rosneft maintains a Delaware-registered investment vehicle, but it essentially abandoned plans to, to buy uh, oil and gas assets in the United States. There are many other examples of scaling this down. So the idea is that the plan to invest in various strategic sectors was much bigger, but the sanctions environment that uh, emerged seven years ago had hurt it. So they were forced to scrap uh, scrap some of these uh, plans and they never materialized. But we have some, some really unexplained situations like this Willow Creek mine, which is very important because uh, Rosatom had proceeded with the acquisition of uh, Uranium One, that's a Canadian company which owns some of the US uranium producing assets. It happened before the 2014 crisis. So what they did is, and, and, and listen, I know what Rosatom is. I used to regulate it for six years in the government. There's hardly any public person in Russia who knows the internal kitchen of Rosatom and is ready to speak about as as I am. So that's a pretty weird uh, situation where they were arguing bitterly that we need to buy these assets because we'll be able to produce uranium, uh, supply it to the domestic U.S. market and get profit and uh, establish a foothold in American markets. But then the first thing they do is they buy this mine and they shut it down, and it's not operational now. That's pretty weird, because it raises the question, why did you buy it in the first place? When you shut it down, and the United States' dependence on uranium imports had increased since. 
So I provide specific graphs and references in my report proving that that is the case. That is not something that is easily explained with economic logic. This is, again, they might have some internal reasons for it, but it should be investigated because uh, the mine was shut down so quickly and is being kept out of operation for so long without any meaningful prospect and so on. And is having a significant impact on growing U.S. dependence on uranium imports. So there's clearly something fishy here that should be investigated. I was also struck by the fact that the U.S. public and the U.S. regulators did not look at it this way and did not pay attention to this case. They were simply processing this like an application. Oh, they're doing some maintenance or whatever. So, okay, let's agree to shut it down. But nobody looked at this from this uh, bigger political context that I'm just explaining right now. Yeah. Well, Vladimir, I I know we're going to have you back because we're going to use Foreign Office to conduct a few panel discussions about the report. Uh, We have a a great slate of contributors. Brian Whitmore from SIPA wrote the forward. Casey Michelle, who has a book on American kleptocracy coming out in the fall, uh, contributed to another chapter on sort of oligarchic influence in the American economy. Is there anything else that we haven't touched upon that's sort of a matter of great urgency? I know you're studying the the Russian political space on a, an hourly basis, much more so than I am. Is there anything that my listeners should need to know about the deteriorating situation, for instance, among civil society groups and Russian media outlets? Friend and, and colleague of the Free Russia Foundation, Roman Debrokatov, was had his apartment raided by the FSB. Criminal charges, I believe, were filed, including language that suggested that the great offense he committed was, quote, embarrassing the GRU before a Western audience based on the unmaskings he's done in conjunction with Bellingcat. I mean, it seems to me like Russia has become a very un- unforgiving and forbidding place for people such as myself who want to conduct just investigative reporting about what's going on. It doesn't even have to directly impact on the government level. Now there's this sort of massive diaspora of people fleeing to the Baltic states, to Ukraine, to any European country that will have them. I mean, where do you see things, I suppose as a final pessimistic note, in the next five years playing out? Is there going to be an opposition and a civil society left in Putin's Russia? Well, let me turn that around a bit and make it a bit more optimistic. Okay, please. Uh, The reason why all this stuff is happening Putin is imprisoning and, uh, you know, everybody uh, squeezing people out of the country, uh, announcing everybody to be a foreign agent or an undesired organization, whatever, right? That's because their public approval hit historic lows. Uh, Just five weeks before the parliamentary election, United Russia approval rating, according to FOM and FSUOM, which are the most loyal, Kremlin-loyal pollsters on the planet, is 27, 28%. There's no way they can win a majority with ratings like that. In reality, it's much lower, obviously. Putin's approval, according to Foman Tsuom, had fell to figures like 57, 57 for this mighty autocrat who is dominating everything, 57 down six percentage points in just four weeks, right? This is not a portrait of a person who has supremacy sufficient to extend his rule indefinitely. Uh, There was a Levada poll in February which says that Putin has no majority in support of his extension of term beyond 2024. And Russians aged uh, lower than 40 are 
clearly against, more than 50% against the extension of his rule. So he has a lot of trouble at home. And importantly, circling back to our Biden policy and uh, geopolitical considerations, Putin wants this domination and supremacy mandate to continue this aggressive politics internationally. So uh, the, the fact that we have, a lot of us have, I'd say temporarily emigrated doesn't change much because we still we have developed a, a huge infrastructure to outreach to Russian people through social media, through internet. Even if they switch that off partially or completely, we'll still find ways to, to communicate with Russians. So I you know I remember Soviet times. I think the disposition on the ground is so much better now because many people, a majority I'd say, is really fed up with this absolutely, you know, uh, historically doomed course that Putin has taken Russia on. And that disillusionment now even penetrates into the official polling numbers that are essentially controlled by the government. Yes, exactly, because uh, they had done everything to try to boost United Russia rating before the election. Putin came to the Congress, announced the top five people on the electoral list, including Shaigu, Lavrov, doctors, people who deal with children and all that, you know, political technology stuff, but it never worked. You know, Russia ratings continue to plunge because obviously they've been in power for so long and people have no illusions anymore. So, yeah, we have a lot of practical instrumental difficulties at the moment. But the fundamental situation on the ground is turning our side. It's going to be a huge uphill battle ahead. No illusions about that. But, I mean, it doesn't look like Putin has any good historical prospect. What he's repeating is he's repeating the pattern of Lukashenko, Maduro, and Assad, who were only able to cling on to power through extreme brutality against their citizens. Like, extreme brutality is the only instrument. That is a contrast with whatever happened to Putin in the previous 20 years, because he was always saying, oh, but this opposition, they are marginal fringe folks, and majority of Russians are with me. Not anymore. That's good news. However, uh, the reality might be very difficult domestically and internationally. An important message to people in the Biden administration who think that they might be able to just walk this tightrope and uh, make deals on strategic issues and close their eyes on human rights in Russia. No, Putin will, he will have his protestivish moment. He will do stuff in the coming weeks and months which the West will have to respond. There's going to be a very, very bad stuff, very damaging stuff, also uh, interfering in your Western democratic systems. So remember my words, there will have to be a response and people who think that they might get along by just another deal with Putin, they are simply dwelling on uh, some out-of-touch illusion. Well, Vladimir, it was great to uh, to chat with you. And as I said, we'll, we'll have you back soon to discuss... Uh your report when everyone can read it and and also do the investigating you've invited them to do to see if (laughs) there's no malign influence at play. You've been listening to Foreign Office. My guest is uh, Vladimir Milov, opposition politician and energy specialist, former energy minister, in fact, in the Russian Federation. And we shall see you next week. Thanks very much.